It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Domenech podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you'll rate, review, subscribe to this one and share it with a friend if you find it of interest. Today, we have two interviews, one with Fox News Sunday host Shannon Bream and the other with Kellyanne Conway, who uh, takes us through a lot of different uh, aspects of the upcoming uh, election and potentially the announcement from former President Trump that he is jumping in in the wake of what we expect to be a major successful Republican midterm. Uh, we have both of these interviews coming up next. Shannon Bream to start it out and then Kellyanne Conway. Hey folks, it's your man Keyshawn Johnson here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Shannon Bream, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I am honored and privileged. <laughs> I uh, first off, I have to say, uh, you know, I know I've congratulated you uh, in person, but congratulations again on your ascension to the top of Fox News Sunday. Thank uh, you so I, much. It's so deserved and and wonderful to have you in that spot. Um, it's also especially demanding to do so in an election season. <laughs> I would yeah. think when you have all these different spinning plates, how do you approach the job, especially when it comes to you know analyzing the run up mm -hmm. to uh, 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 this. Super Bowl of an election uh, in a way that will allow voters and viewers to kind of gain greater understanding of what's going on behind the scenes or the overarching stories at play? I would guess that you and I are very similar as a lot of our colleagues. Like we love the data. Mm -hmm. I love it. Every time there's more internal polling, external polling, anything that comes in, anecdotal stuff. We have amazing reporters who are flooded across the country. So when they tell us like there are this many people showing up at this candidate's events and then this many showing up at the opposing like those kinds of things give you a little bit of color and flavor that you don't just get from the numbers but i love kind of 
synthesizing all of that data and then going out with the best that we can to explain to people what's happening. I mean, when polling is within the margin of error, as it is in almost every one of the big Senate races or within a point or two, all you can do is make your best educated guess and tell people about those anecdotal things, I think, that help fill out the story. I know that you obviously have been paying attention to and in Washington uh, for a long time. You, you know what's going on and the dynamics that are there. This midterm seems very odd to me for a number of different reasons. But a big part of it seems to be that this is the first post-Roe, post-Dobbs mm -hmm. uh, election. And that was certainly something that dominated the media conversation there for a couple of months. What do you think we're going to learn in the coming week about the way that that plays politically within the context of a midterm? I think because there are some states that have abortion measures on the ballot in addition to a Senate or gubernatorial race or whatever and all the House races that are out there, it'll be interesting. I think that's going to aid Democrats in every state that that happened. Michigan is the one that comes yeah. to mind the most because you've got some really tight races there. But when you look at the fact that they had a ruling there. There was a legal fight over it, but the Michigan State Supreme Court said, yes, you can have an abortion measure on the ballot. That helps Democrats, mm -hmm. I think, in those Michigan, especially for Governor Whitmer and Tudor Dixon, that really tight race there. Um, but I think Democrats peaked on that issue over the summer, and they know that now. Mm -hmm. um, but in some markets, they spent 10 to 1. The dollar's talking about abortion versus the economy. Now you've got already the blame game and the pointing you know, fingers, and you've got Democrats saying, like, we didn't listen to voters. We should have talked to them about the economy. So it'll be interesting to see if that stuff's overblown or mm. not when the dust settles. There was this interesting Wall Street Journal report, which I'm sure you saw uh, based on their uh, poll data and a couple of other points of, of emphasis, that a big shift has happened among suburban women mm -hmm. who obviously shifted toward the Democrats in 2020. But now it looks like they're shifting back toward Republicans. You know, they can pick the issue there. But obviously, those are women who Democrats thought they could mm -hmm. activate with the abortion issue. If it turns out that they were not successful doing that, what do you think some of the explanations could be? I think the economy is first and foremost because the abortion issue, yes, will be in and out of women's lives on different in different ways in, in personal or family or whatever issue that they walk through it. It's not in their life every day like buying groceries and gassing up the car. And what's, what, what's happening with their kids in school? I think these mama bears kind of woke yeah. up during COVID and got very frustrated about what are my kids learning? How is this happening in school? So while, listen, my mom was a teacher for 40 years. I think there are amazing teachers out there who you go into this because you love kids. And it's a really much like a servanthood kind of job to be in that classroom and doing that work. But I think that um, more broadly, sometimes these parents look at maybe union leadership or some of these school boards that they say, whoa, this is not the curriculum I thought my kid was getting. So between that and now looking at the test scores showing their kids are a year or two behind, I think those mama bears are still very angry about that kind of stuff. And that translates more into their daily life than I think the Dobbs decision overturning mm -hmm. Roe v. Wade. Another oddity of this midterm seems to be a shift in Joe Biden's character. And bear with me for a moment. Uh, Bacha Unger Sargon, a couple of other uh, smart writers on the left who I follow have been making this point for a couple of months now that basically Joe Biden won. And I was there in South Carolina when he won mm -hmm. the nomination based on the fact that he was the one who was above the Twitter mob, where ev mm -hmm. everybody else got kind of sucked into the social media based priorities and thinking that those mattered most. He was doing kind of this older political game and, and one that was targeted more at big issues. But now this White House seems to be performing in the exact opposite fashion. And from my perspective, it's creating a divide between the people who are on the phone and on the tablet 
and the people who are at the table. Mm -hmm. Because if you have these issues, if you look at social media, you would think maybe that the biggest issues are abortion mm -hmm. and climate and, uh, you know, uh, certainly I think guns, you know, uh, mm -hmm. as, as, as shootings happen and things like that. But if you're at the kitchen table, those aren't the issues that you're talking about every night. Why do you think that divide is happening with this White House? So interesting. Someone way smarter than me, Britt Hume, our longtime political chief around here, um, he had an interesting analysis. We were talking about this today, and he said those two Senate seats in Georgia that went to President Biden may have been his undoing in some ways, because once mm -hmm. that happened, he felt very emboldened that he had more of a governing majority than you really do. When you're in a 50-50 Senate yeah. with the vice president to break all the ties, that's not a mandate. Yeah. But there was something they think, um, you know, that when we talk about this, that a lot of analysts think triggered in him then thinking like, okay, I'm sort of riding this wave. We took both of those seats. This was supposed to, you know, be beneficial to the Republicans. We all know what happened there in Georgia and how that played out. But they think, you know, a lot of people think that that kind of emboldened him to say, well, I don't have to be the super moderate that I campaigned I was going to be. He's got a ton of pressure from the left. You see him when he's got people shouting him down out there on the campaign trail. And he's like, that's it. No more drilling. We're not mm -hmm. doing drilling. Um, talking about getting rid of the coal plants. I mean, mm -hmm. things that, you know, if you're Senator Joe Manchin at this point, are you not feeling kind of punched in the gut that your vote got the Inflation Reduction Act across the line and the deal that you made, the side deal, is probably not going to come to fruition? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, when, when President Biden feels more emboldened and pulled to the left out there, it may hurt his party in this midterm. You know, the reaction to a, a negative midterm has been different. Uh, you know, we saw what happened in 1994. And that obviously led Bill Clinton to triangulate, to listen to Dick mm -hmm. Morris, to find ways to work with Newt Gingrich to get welfare reform done, that kind of thing, balance a budget. But then you also saw the reaction that Barack Obama had to kind of double down. And essentially, it ended his legislative focus as, as president. It became more about nominations and things like mm -hmm. that, uh, foreign policy steps. What do you expect, having observed Joe Biden and his approach to this and the approach of his White House, do you think that there will be a pivot after this potentially negative uh, midterm, or do you think they're just going to double down and kind of do the same thing that the Obama White House did? I don't know what you think, but it feels to me like a double down situation. Yeah. Um, you know, there's always been this traditional meeting with the press after the midterms that the president will come and field questions and really spend time with the press. And as of this morning, the White House press corps said they have not gotten any kind of- I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, that yeah. they haven't gotten any kind of reassurance from the White House that he's actually going to do that, which suggests to me- um, listen, he hasn't listened to the analysts and the strategists who've said pull back from these. And that includes former President Obama, mm -hmm. who said um, repeatedly, like, you guys need to be careful when you do all this woke stuff that people feel like they're watch walking on eggshells and they don't want to be preached to. And they're going to walk away from that and go where they feel more comfortable. So, I, listen, he hasn't listened to a lot of people. who he, like, He's got voices all over the place, I'm sure, trying to tell him what to do as commander in chief. But he's the president and mm -hmm. he will make his own decisions. I hope he does that presser. If not, that signals to me that we're getting a double down. Personally, every time Obama says something like that, I feel this bittersweet feeling of like, why didn't you say that when you were president? <laughs> <laughs> but right, anyway, let's, let's find a way to the middle. <laughs> um, so when it comes to this midterm, I'm sure that there are uh, certain elections that seem more interesting uh, to you in terms of indicating the direction of the country. What are a couple of races that stick out to you that you're going to be paying particular attention to as uh, indications of certain things or certain storylines mm -hmm. that are going on? I think if 
some really crazy things happen for Republicans, whether they pull the Senate seat in New Hampshire or even Washington state. The fact that we're even talking about that Mm -hmm. is not good for the Democrats. If they pull either or both of those seats, I think that this is going to be the tsunami. Now, a lot of people are saying it's not. It's going to be a red trickle. It's not going to be a red wave or red tsunami. We just won't know because these polls are so tight. But if something happened early in the night, like they pulled off, Republicans pulled off New Hampshire, then I'd be like, oh boy, Mm -hmm. the electorate is really frustrated. As we know, they always are in that first midterm. They punish the, the president in power. They punish his party. Um, if those things don't happen and we feel like we have a more moderate situation, I think there are several House races in Virginia that we're all watching mm-hmm. to see um, how those go and whether it's um, a decent night, a good night or a great night for Republicans, because I think all of the predictions fall into one of those categories. Yeah. I mean, if you see uh, you can focus on Virginia seven as kind of being the point mm-hmm. where there, okay, that's, that's a wave. But if 10 goes, mm-hmm. then, I mean, that, that's, that seems, uh, we more sound tsunami. so wonky right now. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> but <laughs> um, I suspect that your listeners but, <laughs> are very much on the same page. Like they know what Virginia I, seven I, and 10 I, is. I've they know. Hung cow. Yes. So, they, so, know. You know, they know. Um, the, uh, the conversation that happens in Washington, uh, you know, this, this time around has focused uh, overwhelmingly on January 6th, mm-hmm. uh, on uh, insurrection, on democracy is in danger mm-hmm. at the ballot. Do you think that Democrats will have any regret off of devoting so much of their energy to that over the past really six to eight months? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they've been talking about this, even though the polls seem to indicate this was never really mm-hmm. catching on as something that voters prioritized. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're already seeing that and hearing that in these um, pieces that are coming out with the finger pointing and like Democrats are mm-hmm. already blaming each other about we didn't listen and we didn't focus on the economy. But there's something that must have indicated to them that this was this was a, win- a winning issue for them. It definitely is going to motivate their base. Mm-hmm. But when you see the president had that primetime speech last week, um, arguably, you know, seven o'clock Eastern time, when you have an evening speech like that, and that's the closing argument is all that if you vote for the right side of the ticket, the country's over. I don't know that you bring in swing voters or independents. I don't know that they're going. Listen, your base wanted to hear that speech that you gave, but they yeah. were already with you. Yeah. So, you know, when you hear people now being quoted, you know, in all these pieces saying, like, we should have done X, you know, they're already having the postmortem. More than one football used this quote over the years, but. You know what they call a moral victory, a loss. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so that might be what they get. And, I, you know, there's so much speculation that they're, oh, this huge red thing. Um, and once the media is kind of on board with that, they've started a few weeks ago with the managing of expectations. Like mm-hmm. when Democrats were surging, um, are the polls wrong? Could the Democrats be caught off guard? I think they've been managing expectations for a mm-hmm. few weeks, too. So obviously we have to talk about uh, former President Trump. Mm-hmm. The elephant in the room. Uh, he uh, certainly is expected to, widely expected to, uh, announce perhaps as early as tonight. Now, <laughs> you oh know, boy, the, the people pushing for it. I doubt that. Um, yeah, let but, us just let, yeah, a, let can, the dust settle let, on let this the dust one. Settle. Let, we got to figure summer. out what's happening um, in the Senate. We have so many things to do. Uh, but when he does announce, because um, I don't see at this point any indication that he won't. That's going to be a very early announcement. Mm-hmm. It's going to be very, you know, ahistorical in the modern era mm-hmm. to announce that early. Just, you know, looking at it from that lens, do you think that that is a mistake? Just given that the risks associated with it 
seem to be bigger, and he could obviously just kind of wait to jump mm-hmm. in whenever he wants. And he knows the power of a tease. Like, he exactly. understands messaging. It seems so out of television. character to me, you know? Right, but I think he's been so, you know, champing at the bit to do yes. this. I yeah. mean, he, and, you know, out there with the rallies, which he gets these amazing turnouts, and he's like, you're going to be very, 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 very happy yeah. soon. Um, but I think we all know, like, when you're building to the announcement, like, people really want the big payoff, but, like, why not make them wait a little longer or make thousands mm-hmm. more come to your rallies mm-hmm. and, and figure it out? And plus, you wonder if it gets sort of, listen, it's going to be huge whenever he does it. But it kind of falls between these holiday season and, and, and yeah. Thanksgiving, Christmas. Like, why not wait and come out of the gate at the beginning of the year or something where you'd really have the full eyeballs and audience that aren't going to be distracted by anything else? It, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And it seems, like I said, it seems out of character for him. He's, yeah. He loves to tease things right. on. He loves to tease them on way longer. And maybe, maybe he should, is with know, this, but... you know, date that's been floated out there. November 14th, yeah. he's going to do it. And maybe he does, you know, mm-hmm. a social media post that day, like, I've got something to say soon. Stay tuned. <laughs> maybe the tease continues because he knows we're all waiting. Um, He made this remark about uh, Ron DeSantis, mm-hmm. which from my perspective went over like a lead balloon. With his, he loves a nickname, though. Uh, he does love a nickname, but he but he also pull, but he also tests the nicknames. Right. And they the test I don't think I, <laughs> I think the test was go back to the comedy cellar needs some work. Yeah. But the but the thing that was interesting about the reaction to that was there were some people who were saying, you know, he really does, you know, he is irritated by DeSantis, that kind of thing. But his supporters love DeSantis. Mm-hmm. You know, he, th- there's the overlap there is. A circle, you know, they, right. they the like, Venn diagram is just all circles on top of exactly, and this. so and so it doesn't. I guess from from my perspective, I don't understand why you would start with that. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's something that you would use that when the time is right. Yeah. Do you think that's an indication that DeSantis really is kind of under his skin? I think he I think he has to be. I mean, where does mm. that nickname come from? If if Trump feels no threat from DeSantis, yeah. I don't think we get that nickname at the rally down there. Um, so I think he's – is it a brushback pitch, you mm. know, to, to kind of say to yeah. the governor? But there was consternation among a lot of GOP folks I heard from were like, don't do this when DeSantis is in the middle of this election, which he's leading by, in some polls, double digits. Mm-hmm. But wait, you know, yeah. let him get through his thing. He's – governor again, he's been reelected if things go according to the polls and then start, you know, the picking at him. But it suggests to me a little bit of, um, yeah, a little bit of insecurity from the former president about the governor. One thing that I do think is interesting is that this time around, the money is probably going to behave very differently. Mm -hmm. You probably saw that that report in Politico about Ken Griffin, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's a number of other big donors on the GOP side who are basically like, we liked Trump, we backed him, we gave to him when he was running mm-hmm. again, but we want to move on. And the difference is that last time around in 2016, money was all spread out all over the place. Mm-hmm. You had tons of money with Jeb, you had t- uh, mm-hmm. all this money going in uh, in different directions, and, yeah. Cruz and Rubio and, and, uh, and Rubio, and then you know tons of money spent on attacking Rubio, right. <laughs> blowing him out of the water, which seems ridiculous mm-hmm. in retrospect. Um, this time around, it seems like the money is there for DeSantis. Mm-hmm. Does this create a danger that getting in early, as as the former president is likely to do, uh, that that money finds its way to sort of saying, we're all going to line up behind one guy. Mm-hmm. And whether that makes a difference or not in the ultimate nomination, it does strengthen them as a candidate. I think it, it pushes everybody's timelines, and it does push that money. If you start two years out, um, we always know the campaign is kind of happening, but, you know, I, you read the piece that's talking about the money to DeSantis. Um, he clearly has support. It's awkward for him because he's running for re-election to his, you know, his post there in, in Florida and saying, 
oh, I'm focused on that right now. But in the back of his mind has to be a mm -hmm. conversation about 24. I'm hearing a lot of people and money talking about Youngkin yes. in Virginia, too. He would be, and, and the chatter I hear surrounding him is that his people feel like if Trump gets in and is really like we all expect to do, making a run at it, that Youngkin is sort of the alternative to him in mm -hmm. that he found a way to thread the needle in purple Virginia and get this thing done. But you know him. If you've spent any time around him or Suzanne, his wife, he's very much the opposite of Trump in that um, he's a smart businessman. They they both have the strong business background there. But Youngkin wants to take the high road. Mm -hmm. Now, will that work in a campaign against Trump? It's going to be rough. Yeah. Anybody who gets in once President Trump is in, they're going to be ready for a beating. Yes. They know it's coming. Uh, just a couple questions before we finish up about your approach to the job. Um Sunday shows mm -hmm. used to dominate conversation. Mm -hmm. I certainly remember, you know, my father would have the VCR set up to record nice. the VCR. Meet the Press <laughs> uh, so that we could watch it when we got home from church. Yes. And he would watch it, you know, and he'd be angry if something preempted it or if it, the, right, or if the tape work, doesn't work tape didn't or whatever, work, you know, yeah. et cetera. And, uh, and so we got to see Tim Russert go into all of these interviews where he would manage to oftentimes hammer people with, you know, past comments and things like that, but also seem not so much confrontational, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just drawing out the truth about the thing that he was trying to get to. Yet today, Sunday shows barely make any news. They mm -hmm. don't register in the same way that they used to. How do you plan to change that? I love that you have all this time to research. And I do love to, I think, you know, Tim Russer was a model in so many respects, but to hammer people with their own votes, their own words, it's something we did with Congressman Clyburn this week. Mm -hmm. Like he was denying saying something. We had just run the soundbite. Yeah. Then I'm reading it back to him. So I think that when you present people with their own information, you can do it with a smile, but be firm with people. So mm -hmm. to me, I like the Russert model and that you're having a conversation with people. I think when any of us try to um, go about something to have a gotcha moment just for the sake of having a gotcha moment, you can yeah. have that when you confront people with their stuff. But I think if the conversation is just about making yourself the headline or the superstar or whatever, you miss a conversation possibility that helps the viewers to actually get insight into people or get some information. But I do think um, one of the most effective things is to just know everything about that person who's coming on there, how they voted ever, you know, since 1973. Shannon's answer is to know everything. I like to know everything. Um, but, you know, we're going to, we're doing different things too. We have people on like athletes and we mm. have sports stories. We have faith stuff. We've got musicians. So we're trying to do things that take you outside the beltway too. In addition to the hardcore political conversation, which I think you can do with a smile. Mm -hmm. I, I think that, you know, one of the big things that I miss is that, that lengthy interview uh, and, and the interviews where, you would have some competing ideas basically back to back in a way that mm -hmm. would really provide the viewers kind of, you know, they could watch one segment and say, you know, man, he's really given that Democrat, you know, the mm -hmm. business on 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 this and 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 be sort of rah rah, and then have a Republican come on mm -hmm. and treat them with that same level of to. firmness mm -hmm. in order to get uh, at the at what's going on here. In the age of the politician soundbite, though, mm -hmm. how do you get through that? How do you punch mm -hmm. through kind of the veneer? 
of talking points that they've mm -hmm. all memorized. Well, the minute they start doing that, um, you know, we had Governor Stitt on, the Republican in Oklahoma, who is in a surprisingly tough race. And that's yeah. a weird one because his opponent was a Democrat until last year, or a Republican, Republican yeah. flipped a Democrat to run against him. So it's almost like Republican and Republican light. Mm -hmm. You know, some people would argue running against each other. And so I'd asked him a question about these accusations that he's been mired in scandal. And he starts giving an answer that's not really going to that. Mm -hmm. And we had a weird delay, like you do sometimes in these remote interviews. And I was like, Governor, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to step on you here, but you're not answering the question about this federal audit and how you use this money or the state investigation or these accusations that you were funneling, you know, taxpayer subsidy benefits to your business. Like, I just got to stop you in the middle of the answer because it sounds good and you know they've rehearsed it. Mm -hmm. They prepare for Sunday shows. Um, but I need you to answer the question I asked. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that, you know, interrupting their train of thought is unsettling for them, but it's where you get the most information. Uh, last uh, question. Uh, you have gone through the experience of, of covering a number of these, obviously. Do you have any, and this is a question I asked Brett, it's a question I asked Bill Hemmer, do you have any tricks or recommendations <laughs> about how to sustain yourself at that TV level of energy mm -hmm for you know an eight hour clip or something right. like that uh, when you have to go late um, in the night. I'm decaf, so I don't do any <laughs> caffeine. So when I see people with Red Bulls and stuff, I'm like, whoa. Um, so I don't, I try not to eat like total crap mm -hmm. because there's junk food everywhere. I know I'm gonna feel better if I stay hydrated, if I get sleep wherever I can. We don't get a ton of sleep during these weeks, but we love what we do. So I think in part, we're just running off adrenaline. Mm -hmm. but just try to pace yourself. You, you know, know? I, I actually, even though I consume a ton of caffeine, I try not to overdo it mm -hmm. because I feel like it it's makes a fine me, line. There's a fine line. You, <laughs> yeah. can, get, you can get kind of jittery and, and sort yeah. of. Uh, I gave it up about five or six years ago and it made a huge difference in the way that I sleep and the mm -hmm. way that I feel. And so I really, I feel it was hell getting off of it. Getting off of it. So I'm like, I can't go back there. Yeah. I can't do that detox again. Shannon, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. My now. treat. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. Kellyanne, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down with me. It's today. a pleasure, Ben. Thank you. Uh, first off, I have to thank you for your very kind description of me in your book. I don't even <laughs> if you even remember that. Of course I remember. I wrote every word. <laughs> well, that's something that sets you apart from most of the people in Washington then. I wrote every word and uh, decided what ended up going in the final copy and what did not, along with my editors. And I was fairly insistent that that stay. You know, one Why don't of the you tell the viewers what was in there. <laughs> uh, oh, I can't do that. I can't read my own. <laughs> it's, it's like well, reading I can my paraphrase. Own I mean, I, just, uh, I, I complimented you for saying at the end of a random conversation at one of these DC events, I think it was an Axios event, yes. where I was just trying to be nice. Um, your wife had actually invited uh, George and me to your home for a barbecue. I still have the email, and uh, it never happened. But anyway. I had said, look, when George and I first started dating and then we're engaged, we did the commuting thing between D.C. where I was and New York where he was and, you know, it works out. And then you stopped me and you said, the view is the worst show on television. <laughs> it's kind of funny. That Still true. That was kind of clarifying. <laughs> even more, even but, more um, true. No, it, it is particularly... a horrible depiction of American femininity. <laughs> well, um, gee, you're, you know, someone close to you lasted quite a few years there. Yes, yeah, she did. and uh, And I think it takes – a lot out of you. I think it's telling that so many people who emerge from that experience uh, seem almost permanently damaged by it. Uh, and the level of animosity, I think, from the industry toward any conservative woman, but particularly any pro-life conservative woman uh, in media is 
unfortunately, I think, just incredible. There really are – If I mean if you look at it outside of Fox Network and, and other conservative networks, on the broadcast networks, you know, NBC, ABC, CBS, uh, there are no pro-life women who are there. And while you may have some conservative women here and there uh, at networks, there just is nobody who consistently has an opposing view on the abortion issue. I know that that's an issue that you care about. I know that it's something that is important to a lot of women. Why do you think it is that the media wants to pretend that pro-life conservative women don't exist? They don't know any in their personal lives. And I think if you, you, I write in my book also that we never deeply examine that which we deeply disdain, which is why so many people to this moment, Ben, still do not appreciate, understand, acknowledge, or respect the 74 million Trump Pence voters, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want them all to have been in the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. Yes. They want them all to be running from the hills toothless, barefoot. With Bison their, hat you know, in hand. Absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's why so many of the quote, pollsters, media pollsters, get everything so wrong. And I see them playing a little cover your butts this time around because they were wrong in 2016. They were wrong in 2018. We actually picked up seats in the Senate because they misread the Kavanaugh moment. And uh, they were certainly wrong in 2020. Even with a different presidential outcome, they were still underestimating, undervaluing, and undercounting the strength of the Trump voter. But let me back up a second. When it comes to... um, abortion, I do think that is an area where there's always been a very strong bias in the mainstream media. There's no question about that. It's almost their litmus test. I'm most concerned, I'm I'm a little less concerned that the media refuse to engage or acknowledge or hire pro-life women than I am that you have an entire political party in this country, the one that has full control of Washington, D.C. right now, in fact, an entire Democratic Party it has no pro-life women in it. Right. So I don't know how many Democratic female senators there are. Let's say 18, 20. I don't know how many there are. It doesn't matter to me, and here's why. If you had 100 of the 100 United States senators be pro-abortion and pro-choice women, uh, or women, excuse me, be women, would it matter? Because they all have one point of view on everything. Mm-hmm. They're all gun grabbers. They're all for higher taxes. They all voted for the Inflation Reduction Act, and they're all for abortion. Mm-hmm. And so if you have every woman in a political party, beginning with this disaster of a vice president, Kamala Harris, with one point of view on one of the most fraught issues in our culture that brings together science, medicine, religion, morality, gender, politics, law, and everything else, they only have one point of view. They're not representing the rest of America. And they are the extremists. I think what President Trump, what Donald Trump, candidate Trump did to Hillary Clinton in that final debate, August 19, 2016, was transformative. Just turning to her and saying, you're the extremist on abortion. You would rip that baby out of his mother's womb an hour before it's born. Really changed the conversation, allows people to say to pro-choice folks all the time. Now, well, what are your exceptions? Have you ever met an abortion you think is a bad idea? If you look at the way that the media tried to spin the post-Dobbs political environment, they spent basically a month and a half, two months, Trying to claim that, oh, you know, there's, I mean, the, the headline in Politico was Dobbs regret, you know, the, the idea that you know, Republicans were sad that Roe, you know, had gone away um, and that they were going to, you know, lose uh, seats over it. First off, I think most pro, pro-life Americans would gladly accept that, that result as a trade-off if necessary. But then you have this dynamic, as the Wall Street Journal was reporting just the other day, that we see all these suburban women coming back toward the Republican sure. Party. In the post sort of uh, midterm narrative, how do you think the media, 
how do you think the pollsters are going to square this assumption that these same women for whom you said abortion was going to be a determinative thing that turned things around for the Democrats, it really looks like it's going to be the opposite, that all these suburban women voters who you thought were going to go in one direction are going to go in the opposite direction. And that's what happens when you narrow cast to any one group based on their gender or their race or their age or other immutable characteristics, Ben. And that's what the Democrats did here. They narrow casted to women on abortion. They really talked to women from the waist down only. Whereas I think the Republican Party speaks to women from the waist up. After all, that's where our eyes, ears, brain, <laughs> mouths, and hearts are. So waist up is much better. Um, also, you know, women are not th- single issue thinkers. We're not single issue voters. We are multi thinkers, multitaskers. You know this. And uh, so why in the world would we go to the ballot box and only be thinking of any one thing? I think the Democrats have done, made a similar miscalculation among Hispanics, thinking they only care about immigration. Turns out many of them do care about immigration and border security, but they, they support want it. They, want, they want it. <laughs> and that's exactly right. They they want legal immigration. They want border security. They're very concerned about a rise in crime, a rise in fentanyl, taking over the country, et cetera. And they want us to be a sovereign nation with forcible physical borders. Uh, the other thing is, this is the first post-Roe, post-pandemic, post-January 6th election. The Democrats thought it would all go their way, and their friends in the media thought it would all go their way. None of those issues are really going to go their way in the end. Um, January 6th, a terrible day in American history. I've always been consistent on that, wrote a big statement, on long statement on January 7th. I'll never change my mind. But I feel about January 6th the way I feel about Paul Pelosi's attacker, the way I feel about the rapist and he's the way I feel about everyone. If you've committed a crime, you ought to be arrested, indicted, or, you know, put up for indictment, um, tried, uh, have our, our, our rule of law, our justice system do its work and punished, um, no matter who you are and how the crime was committed. So that's, that's one thing. But this idea that Americans were going to put aside all the top issues, Ben, inflation, economy, crime, education, um, immigration, border security, and just talk about January 6, 2021 was always foolish. Yes. Uh, I know that you have been paying attention to polling and to uh, attitudes during multiple Republican waves that transformed Washington. Uh, the Newt Gingrich 1994 wave, the 2010 Tea Party wave. But looking back at those waves, as much as they did uh, enact change. You know, you saw policies shift because of them. Uh, you saw a lot of, you know, a blockade against, you know, particularly President Obama's agenda. There's also this feeling of dissatisfaction and that essentially conservative voters, people who demanded change from Washington, didn't get enough out of these waves. They didn't get everything that they really asked for. And so you have this frustration that, you know, we we go out there and we see a wave election but we don't see the things that we want changed. How can the Republican leadership, as you see it, the, the new Republican leadership in the in the House that's likely uh, to, to form, how can they avoid the mistakes of the 94 and the 2010 wave when it comes to advocating for dramatic change in Washington? It's an excellent question. And first of all, the gains this time can never be as big as those gains because we don't have enough available seats. Yeah. Both parties have made sure that through redistricting, we don't have as many available seats that are truly swing seats, Ben. Plus, the de- the Republicans banked 14 or 15 seats in 2020 already. So, but to your very important question about how to take a political wave election 
and make sure the policy gains are there that we can see. I think McCarthy, as Speaker, uh, he's very close to Newt. He'll learn some of those lessons. And Newt Gingrich, as the new Speaker, did put things up for a vote that they had promised to do. But there was a lot of resistance, a lot of internecine warfare, a lot of distraction about Bill Clinton. I think you ignore Joe Biden or you put things on his desk and make him explain to the American people why he's for more spending, more trillions of dollars of spending of money we don't have on things we didn't ask for or quite need, why he is for energy dependence, why he is for an insecure, porous border over which millions of people have walked um, since Joe Biden has been there. Let Joe Biden explain. Let the Republicans do their work. The worst thing Republicans can do if when they take power in two short months, Ben, is number one, have all this internecine war, you know, fight infighting about committee assignments, about chairmanships, about what's most important on the agenda so that things don't get done. And, and number two, to say what no voter wants to hear them say, which is, oh, we can't do that. Joe Biden will never sign into law. We can't. We need a Republican president. To do that. Forget all that. Forget all that. Because it didn't work on repealing and replacing Obamacare, did it? Mm-hmm. We had a 2018, we had, I was there, we had in 2017 and 18, we had a Republican House and Senate. President Obama came in, President Trump came in and said, well, this will be easy, repealing and replacing Obamacare. After all, these House members have voted for it dozens of times. They're just waiting for a president not named Obama mm-hmm. to repeal and replace Obamacare. Didn't happen. So that we, if you made a promise to your constituents of what you would do and you've won your primary, let alone your general, mm-hmm. doing that, promising that, you need to make good on that. So they need to be bold. And I think Kevin will. I think McCarthy will. Sure, investigate things like Hunter Biden, the beginnings of COVID, where we overreacted, where we underreacted, investigate Afghanistan. Don't go for impeaching um, Joe Biden. Let him twist in the wind. Let the Democrats own and eat him and the vice president he chose. Do you think they should impeach Mayorkas? I think they should ask him questions under oath and not allow him to lie anymore. Here's a guy who's lied so many times. The border's secure. Uh, the, the the border agents risking their lives and their safety every single day, Ben, were whipping migrants. No, they weren't. So he needs to apologize. He needs to be held to account. And I think the country will welcome that. Do you think that Mitch McConnell will go along with a more aggressive approach, the kind that, you know, really puts the Biden administration on the spot, given that he always seems to return to the comfort of, of quote unquote, normalcy, as he defines it? Well, he should do that, and he may do that, very well may do that, because he's going to be majority leader again, mm-hmm. um, it, it it would seem. and But he's used to dealing with majorities, being in the minority or the majority, where the numbers are so slim. But we've just lived through Kamala Harris doing absolutely nothing except breaking ties in the Senate. She now holds the record. She's beaten John Adams, <laughs> yes. and Mike Pence had a few, many too, but beating the record uh, for the most tie-breaking votes so people will reflect on that. I think Mitch McConnell knows that better than anyone, Ben, that we cannot have. Uh, they they took their slim majority of a 51st vote from a very unpopular, unwelcome in the campaign trail, Kamala Harris as vice president, and pushed forward all this nonsense like Inflation Reduction Act. Every Democrat voted for it. Every Republican voted against it. She's a tie-breaking vote. So I think if I'm Leader McConnell, I look at that and I say, we're going to do exactly the same thing and get our agenda moving. I found this speech the other day, and I want you to react to this quote. Uh, The great strength of the Democratic Party in my lifetime has been that it has always produced young, nasty people who had no respect for their elders. 
And I think that one of the great problems we have in the Republican Party is that we don't encourage you to be nasty. We encourage you to be neat, obedient, and loyal, and faithful, and all those Boy Scout words, which would be great around the campfire, but are lousy in politics. That's Newt in 1978. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Newt, I mean, and one of my mentors and heroes, Newt Gingrich, uh, will tell you that that's the year he finally won. It he is. lost in 74, he lost in 76, he won in 78, but it took until 1994 to to have the Republicans take over the House and Senate, lots of governorships and state legislatures too. Um, it took many years, it took 20 years since he first started to complete that Reagan revolution. But I, I hear what he's saying, and I think you're going to see that in the Democratic Party more than anything. Mm-hmm. I think um, when Republicans take control and if Donald Trump announces He's there running for president again. It doesn't scramble the Republican field. It scrambles the Democratic field. Then the George Wills of the world. Then the, mm-hmm. then the smart, frustrated um, few like a Mark Penn or a Jessica Tarlov or Maria Salazar today, um, you know, saying what she I, I think she was attacking her own party, the Democratic Party. Then they step up and they say, listen, mm-hmm. we have to do something. You here. saw the Hillary Rosen comments. Hillary so. Rosen, another yeah. friend of mine, um, you know, very smart Democratic strategist who's seen a lot in her. But are they going years. to listen to that when the whole attitude of this next generation seems to be this sort of, whether it's AOC or AOC adjacent, this kind of millennial girl boss, we know best, a type progressive wokeness, as opposed to, you know, a a more class-focused uh, thing, you know, the kind of stuff that uh, uh, Bajan Garsargan writes about quite a lot uh, that basically says, you know, of course, defund the police makes no sense. Of course, you know, you're you need to be appealing based on these class motivations and not on this race based woke agenda. Not sure that they're capable of doing that, because in addition to AOC and the squad that doesn't do squat, you know, you've got people to judge went pretty far in the presidential uh, election in 2020, speaks eight languages, but it turns out none that make any sense to Americans right now. Mm-hmm. As Secretary of Transportation, when he talks about everybody getting in electric cars and uh, pretends infrastructure, the infrastructure bill made any sense or pretends that that your, your canceled or delayed mm-hmm. air travel isn't really your canceled or delayed air travel, I think he ruined himself in part by going into this sad and pathetic administration. So I'm not sure he could do it. He's a corporate guy in a way. He's a McKinsey guy. So the donors will always love him. I'm not sure he can do it. Hakeem Jeffries is circling around to take over some leadership positions, it seems, um, kick out you know, Steny Hoyer and Nancy Pelosi. But there, too, I'm not sure he's able to he, – that he's willing to really have the message that you just – that would have been Tim Ryan yeah. had he not run for Senate. It was Tim Ryan in 2016. So Donald Trump wins, and he wins in large part appealing to workers and appealing to – manufacturing and coal and energy and the, and the like, uh, has a real workers forgotten man, forgotten woman agenda. And Tim Ryan does the very bold thing, Ben, of running against Nancy Pelosi Mm -hmm. for a leadership position. And then sort of goes right back to voting with Biden 100% of the time on the stump this time, you know, on the stump, he's embracing Trump with these trade ads, Trump's so wonderful on trade, et cetera. Votes with Biden 100% of the time. So if you can find that messenger, I, I suppose so. But this Democratic Party has bled workers as voters and now is bleeding Hispanics and uh, suburban women, et cetera. So they're really losing their philosophical moorings and the, and the guts of their party. The Democratic Party I grew up in in South Jersey, I grew up very modestly where all the men in my family and our extended family, they were all in the private trades. They were carpenters and welders and pipe fitters and iron workers and hairdressers and and so they they just that that part of the Democratic Party seems to be gone. I think 
even this past weekend proved again, it's just a bunch of a lot of um, liberals, mainly white, rich Mm -hmm. liberals, but a lot of rich liberals. I'll put Barack Obama in there. A lot of rich liberals um, just scolding everybody, telling the rest of us how to feel and what to drive, what to wear, what to eat and how to vote. Democracy is at stake. It doesn't matter that the cost of diapers is up 180 percent. Right. And the Joe baby Biden formula. And yeah, the baby dad formula. of almost two daughters knows yeah, this. Exactly. Um, the conversation about uh, where Democrats go from here is interesting. Uh, and you teased it in the sense of we assume that, uh, you know, and it, I'm, I'm assuming that you uh, are also of the opinion that once Donald Trump announces that the uh, uh, in the wake of this election that you will have a lot of reaction that follows on to that perspective of, do we really want to run Joe against him again, just given how terribly these things are going, do they really have someone to turn to that's realistic? The Democrats, well, they can't do what a president who's failing and flailing as badly as Biden is uh, would normally do, especially if they have the first female vice president, first yeah. female of color vice president, just turn to her. Yeah. You know, imagine this, Ben. Imagine being Joe Biden and your disapproval rating has been uh, over 50% for a year. You've left nobody happy on any major issue at all. And imagine, though, that they are able to come to you and say, Joe, you ran for president for 40 years. You finally got the brass ring. Mm-hmm. You've been in the Oval. You invested in climate in the future. You've done all these great things. You've done absolutely nothing great. Yeah. done all these great things. And we're going to do you one more. You're going to make history one more time, not just by being the oldest mm-hmm. president, but by being the one who elevated the first female vice president of color in our nation's history. Step aside and let her take the reins. Nobody will be able to say that to him, Ben, because she is a disaster yes. in equal measures to his disaster. She's lost 18 senior staffers. And I, you know, when people say, oh, her approval ratings, uh, they're, 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 her approval ratings are low because of racism and sexism. It's called eyesight and hearing. Yeah. We're watching and listening. And so they can't even do that. They can't turn to her. Imagine that. So I don't know who they've got. Their bench is their problem, not mine or yours. However, your point is the right one which is I don't believe that Trump announcing scrambles the Republican field. I think it scrambles the Democratic field. And as much as they say, we'd love a cage match rematch with Donald Trump. We beat him once, we'll beat him again. There's no way they really feel that way. Even Ron Klain, who on most days is a tweeter and not a leader, has to look at that and say, there's no way in hell. It is funny. That if it's a binary choice. It is funny to track his tendencies just based on, it's it's very. And who they invite for Rose Garden ceremonies and whatnot. James Taylor. Also silly. Um, well, a lot of these people, too, <laughs> who I think have been pushed up by bots and not much else. Uh, the point is that even he would need to say, hold on, um, can we really, can we beat Donald Trump if you strip everything else away? And everything else won't be stripped away. Trump yeah. will be talking about other things and and so will the Democrats. But if you stripped everything away and it's a true binary choice between Trump's economy and Biden's economy, Trump's energy policy, Biden's energy policy, where is Putin when Trump's president? Where is he when Biden's president? Is the border secure? Is crime rising? Is is fentanyl the number one killer of 18 to 44-year-olds? On which president's watch did that happen and not happen? That is why I think so many of these voter groups are realigning with the Republicans this time when Trump's not on the ballot, but Biden is. Mm-hmm. Clearly, there is some tension there with the one person who prognosticators think could give the former president trouble in terms of the nomination battle, and that's Ron DeSantis. Um, do you think that 
an early announcement runs any risk, just without any sort of devotion to to uh, uh, the former president as someone who you worked for, helped elect, et cetera, um, just from the from the analyst side of things, does he run the risk of uh, creating a scenario where he has to sustain momentum for so long by announcing so early that it increases the likelihood of someone like DeSantis jumping in and running against him? So a couple things. Um, President Trump announcing a run soon would dissuade many people who thought of running from running. Tom if Cotton, he, for instance, just announcing took himself the out. other day, take you know, himself out. He's a young man, as is Ron DeSantis, and they can run in the future. So a few things. I think what happens if it's Joe Biden and Donald Trump, there are other candidates who will run, who will tease a run. But they're more, uh, I wouldn't even call them independents. I think some of them are never Trumpers. I think some of them are worried that Donald Trump could beat Joe Biden. So they're going to try to get in there the way Ross Perot did Mm -hmm. after Pat Buchanan bloodied up George Herbert Walker Bush in 1992 in those primaries. He couldn't beat him for the nomination, but he bloodied him up enough that here comes Ross Perot, gets 19% of the popular vote, Ben, 30% in Maine, his best state, 9% in Mississippi, his worst state, but doesn't win electoral votes. Mm -hmm but ushers in the Bill Clinton presidency because he played spoiler. So I think there will be plenty of people who can see Biden and Trump getting well under 50% of the vote and being a spoiler. And you may have even more than one person do that. Maybe Liz Cheney will run. She can't win, Mm -hmm. but she can make it miserable for a while for for different people. Um, But in the case of DeSantis, I can go either way with Governor DeSantis, who I do know and who I respect enormously. I think he's been a unbelievably successful governor of our third largest state. Mm -hmm. And I think there's an argument for him staying in that job. Be that most unbelievable two-term governor our third largest state Florida has ever seen. Ron DeSantis can take credit for the economy there, for the investments in workforce development, for education, for his COVID response, for picking the right side of culture wars. The list goes on and on. And all the new, I think we're in the six figures, new Republican registered voters in Florida. Florida is no longer a purple state. It certainly is a blue state. It's ruby red. And I think if he does that, then he walks into the presidency practically in 2028, mainly because most of his generational peers who would be running then are in the United States Senate. These are great guys. I love them. Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Josh Hawley, uh, Tom Cotton. They're 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 great guys. But guess what? They work in the United States Senate. They're yeah. not the governor of the third largest state doing all these great things. Now, on the flip side, I know people around Ron DeSantis who tell him, Chris Christie lost his moment in 2011-2012. Like, yes. you know, nobody knows what it'll be like a yeah. few years from now. Uh, I think the parallels are fine, but not completely apt, not completely apt. But um, but there, too, I mean, Ron DeSantis has to turn around and say to Florida, thanks for reelecting me. By the way, I'm going to Iowa, New Hampshire now. So he's got to think about that, too. So there's there's much to consider. But I think you're making the point that the bench on the Republican side is full Mm -hmm. and it's deep. And whether you're Donald Trump or Mike Pence or Ron DeSantis or someone in the future, you like most of the 2022 candidates are running on the America First policy agenda. You just are. You have to go back and look at the Trump Pence accomplishments for your roadmap, for your blueprint of how you would promise and how you would govern mm-hmm. as a Republican, as a center-right conservative president. There's been an overwhelming dominance on the part of baby boomers in our politics for a long mm-hmm. time. Joe Biden is obviously even older. He's silent generation. Uh, the you know, as you know, there are now more millennials than there are baby boomers. Um, 
at what Don't point? Forget Gen Xers. Yeah, well, no, the for see, generation. No, this is actually what I was going to ask. Are we, are we just going to skip? Are we just going to skip over Gen X in terms of political leadership? Well, I don't know. Are you going to? Is there never going to be a Gen X president? Well, we've got a bunch of Gen Xers who are governors. Yeah, and but senators like Tim and Ryan and Beto and Stacey Abrams, people. all those people are about to get swept off the map. They are. They are. Um, but they, those three deserve to be. Yes. Uh, they've run. I mean, Tim Ryan actually has run a pretty good campaign. It's just it's just filled with lies about yeah. who he is and, <laughs> and, and what he would do as senator. Besides that. <laughs> uh, Beto, of course, I, I wonder if Beto O'Rourke, if he's just happy for his wife to be home raising those three kids because, boy, has he run for a lot of offices <laughs> unsuccessfully while she's been there with the kids. And Stacey Abrams went Hollywood, you know, putting herself on covers of magazines and making millions of dollars. And so people don't always like That's that. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't give up on a Gen X president. Maybe the Gen X president could go after the millennials. You never know. But see, isn't it the most Gen X thing to think about running for president and then not do it? It's the most Gen X thing to be skipped over. (laughs) I can tell you that. 1965, we're we're so small. And I always call us the generation formerly known as X. Stop giving us like this unknown variable (laughs) X. Um, But I think we've done great things. So, yeah. I, I worry about shifting to a millennial politics in America for a couple of reasons, but obviously the most you know dominant aspect of it from my perspective is that going out there and doing work does not actually seem to be something that they are designed to do. <laughs> the, everything is so performative, um, driven by social media. Uh, it's kind of uh, spastic and chases after different rabbits. Um, and you can see that not just in the realm of politics, but, you know, it, it, right now we see the kind of layoffs that are happening to the tech industry, you know, uh, under the leadership of people like Mark Zuckerberg, who, you know, are supposed to be you know brilliant millennials, uh, but are also, you know, constantly taking their eye off the ball or, or chasing some shiny object. What does it mean to be moving to a millennial stage of leadership for the Democratic Party? And what do you think it's going to do to the nature of their of their dynamic, if given that the Republicans are about to have all these new people, as you mentioned, coming into their coalition, um, is this millennial generation of leadership just going to double down on wealthy households, you know, racial resentment, uh, you know, climate and uh, and alphabet soup, gender issues and that kind of thing? So I don't, like to, I don't like to overgeneralize based on a, a generation, but I will say this, the way the Democratic Party seems to be approaching the future as as millennials and maybe millennial dominated, as you say, Ben, uh, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say they're going to stick with what they know, not with what they should do. One thing I that I don't predict will happen after this election is any kind of course correction and self-examination. I think yeah. the Democratic Party is going through a real identity crisis that began with Donald Trump's election over Hillary Clinton, but has continued really Unabated. all the way into having over 20 Democrats run for president in 2020 and saying, standing up and looking you with this in, in the eyes of the straight face and saying, we are the party of youth and energy. And we have um, a, a black woman, an African-American man running. We have Hispanic. We have the first openly gay man running. We have an American Samoan. By the way, it was Tulsi Gabbard, not Elizabeth Warren, in case we're confused. <laughs> uh, speaking of Elizabeth Warren, we have a socialist woman, a socialist man. They had one of everything running. They like to brag. And they ended up with the old white guy who had been in Washington, D.C. for five decades. So they've just got this sustained identity crisis that will probably deepen and worsen with millennials taking over the Democratic Party. 
which Democrats, I'd like to know of any gener- generation, better are going to stand up and say, excuse me, we need, we just got our asses kicked again. We need to learn from this. What are we learning? If Lee Zeldin comes up short, and God, I hope he wins and he's the next governor of New York, if he comes up even just a little bit short, is Kathy Hochul going to take a look in the mirror and saying, I just had a political near-death experience. Mm-hmm. I'm going to learn from this. Crime is a big issue. First thing I'll do as governor is, is she? I think they never really learn their lessons at all. We already hear that uh, that uh, uh, siren song from uh, Stacey Abrams and from uh, Keisha yeah. Bottoms that, you know, uh, it's all just misinformation yes. online. The voter is so dumb and, yeah. and we're just trying to manipulate them. Absolutely. So uh, let's go out on this. What makes you hopeful about the future of American politics and what concerns you the most about the next period in terms of, you know, Republicans taking over, presumably the House and the Senate, you know, winning a lot of races, you know, increasing, uh, increasingly playing in new territory when it comes to their coalition. What gives you hope and what gives you concern? I'm always hopeful about America. It is such a strong, sturdy nation filled with beautiful, amazing people. And the story of this nation is resilience and second chances. And if you had a job like mine as senior counsel to the president, and all you do all day long is meet the most incredible people across this country, you end up not being skeptical or even cynical, Ben. You end up being very optimistic and hopeful. And you realize that the work you're doing is has such a great impact on so many different lives. Um, this is a country that where people don't wake up every morning putting on their red and blue uniforms by and large. And I think they're getting back to just basic common sense, essential freedoms, appreciation for essential freedoms and liberty and fairness. The left loves to talk about equity. We're talking about fairness. They don't want men and girls sports. They don't want plumbers and pipe fitters to, to, to pay the student loans of lawyers and doctors. They don't want tax being taxed and regulated unfairly. Uh, They don't want, they want school choice and, charter schools and educational freedom and opportunity scholarships. They really do want all of that. And they're saying their, 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 their basic premise is that we can do better and get better. And I also think the biggest division in our country that doesn't get enough attention, which doesn't make me that hopeful though, is the difference between people who live their lives mostly offline, like I choose to, and people who live their lives mostly online, which is a lot of people in this country. I think that's got to give at some point. People are just going to wake up one day and say, I need fresh air and a fresh perspective. It's the kitchen table versus the kitchen tablet. And I, I too, am worried about misinformation. I'm worried about a president, Mm -hmm. Joe Biden, who is being fact-checked so continuously right now by CNN and the Washington Post. That's new. (laughs) Their fact-checker has gone to sleep and fired or whatnot. (laughs) They took a big hiatus. Um, They're they're out of their hibernation, and they're fact-checking him. They're saying endless, literally today in the Washington Post, endless Pinocchios. For the president of the United States going out there to the places like Union Station and New York, where he's actually welcome to the campaign trail, Maryland, none of these are swing states, uh, where, he, where he is welcome and just lying to the American people. But I'm hopeful also, and I, I will tell you, I need to actually say this to you or else I'd be a hypocrite. Um, I hope that you interview me today doesn't get you in trouble at home. I would say that if Bill Clinton were sitting here too, no. uh, because you know it's it's charming for you to, it's very charming for you to think that 
your wife was being put upon because she was a pro-life woman. But I would like pro-life women like that or conservative women to not be so rough on other pro-life conservative women like me. Well, I you know, don't it's think not she's nice. being on you for Well, it's not, it's not nice for her to say but... she finds my husband and me disgusting and our entire marriage to be disgusting. I don't judge her marriage. I only pray for, for her health and for the, um, the beauty of your marriage and your life together and your two daughters. Um, and, and so I, I think shows like that make people take leave of their senses sometimes. But, um, you know, as somebody who tries, if somebody was not to the manner born, I have a lot in common with everyday people. And, and I think that's why I have so much hopefulness for this country too. This country's success stories really are made, um, from people from the, in the most unlikely places and spaces and the forgotten man, forgotten woman, having grown up with people exactly like that. Uh, my mother's the original forgotten woman, forgotten by her husband, forgotten by feminism, forgotten by upward economic mobility. Um, you know, she's just a wonderful person, of course. I think there's so many more stories like that in this country that we have a hard time seeing and uncovering. Um, but no, I'm a, I'm a person filled with mercy and forgiveness, and I don't hold grudges. But I, I think a little bit of perspective helps, too. I was always treated very nicely in The View. It's hard to see that if you watch The View. But I know what the conversations were when the cameras weren't rolling. And I have to say at The View, it was actually the older generation always very nice to me off camera because they see in me, like them, somebody who had to fight against a lot of men in my industry and emerge, you know, on the other side of that. So, Is there something that you would, you know, when you look back at the uh, the you that was there in the late 90s in those ATR meetings – with the stale bagels and the bad and Doug Dominic. Um, <laughs> is there something that you would go back and advise yourself at that stage? If you could send a message back in time. Wow. That's a great one. Yes. I would, um, I would never not get on those prop planes to go figure out how it's playing in Peoria or what they're loving in Lubbock. The gift of my professional career, Ben has been went that I went to all 50 states at least once to actually do products, to actually suss it out and sit with the people and listen to them. There's such an essential wisdom of people. They, If we put them in charge of solving these problems, they would do it like that because they thought it through. They literally cannot afford to make bad mistakes with some of their consumer purchases and some of their life decisions. Um, what I would tell my younger self is to not let other people define you or make you feel badly. Mm -hmm. I like to say that nobody can make you feel badly without your permission, so don't grant it. And I tell, say that to a lot of young men, but particularly women. But I think what I would say to myself then is, in Washington, D.C. particularly, get out. Get out there and go talk to people everywhere they live. Fly over country, unfortunately, is a real thing to many people. They don't really... You know, they don't, they don't necessarily understand the way a lot of people think and live. There's a lot of judgment out there and not a lot of grace. The last thing I would say to younger, per, younger Kellyanne in those meetings, and I would say at those meetings with the stale bagels and ATR and Grover's an old friend and mentor of mine, we dance at each other's weddings. Um, I would say this, Ben, if you're young, particularly learn to accept and understand the word no more than you say it. You will be rejected. You will be passed over. Your heart will be broken. You won't get that job or that position in college or graduate school, that seat that you thought you really deserved, that you can taste, that you know you had strived for and earned. Um, but don't say the word no so much. Be available. Be accessible. Raise your hand and help out. Uh, when the boss says, whether it's in an internship or your first paying job, when they say, hey, 
can you stay late tonight? We have a crisis. Can you work this week? And I said, well, I was going to work out tonight. Saw my favorite show or I've got it. My friend's getting, having a bachelor party. Don't say to that. Say, yes, I can. Chances are the crisis is averted. The, 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 the need passes and you get the credit as somebody who's available and accessible and cheerful. And I'll, I'll pass along the vice too to a younger person, younger me that I got from someone, uh, which is if you can't be good at it that day, at least be pleasant about it. People love to work with people who aren't gossipy and sniping about other people. They love to work with people who are pleasant and prompt. I'm not always prompt, but I am pleasant um, and cheerful and optimistic. But it's a great message to our politicians too. Stop with the scolding us and lecturing us and, and the sour, dour, gloom and doom. We want to be lifted up. We want people who are ready to solve problems, ready to build consensus when necessary, and ready to fight for those principles, of course, when essential. And that's what I would that's what I would really say. But I would also tell people today, show up at those meetings. You cannot live your life on Zoom. You can't just work from home for the rest of your life. And by the way, Kamala Harris, work from home does not does not apply to the vice president of the United States. What's the, okay? <laughs> really, really, we could be done, but. Can you say one nice thing about Kamala Harris? We've been pretty hard. One nice thing about Kamala Harris. I know I can say one nice thing if you need a minute. Uh, one nice thing about Kamala Harris is that she has nice pantsuits. <laughs> My nice thing is I will defend Kamala's use of wired headphones as opposed to Bluetooth. <laughs> she got some crap for that. I don't. I don't disagree with her there. Um, those things always fall out of my. They always fall out. They're too expensive. Always fall out. They're meant to be lost, by the way. Yes, that's the George the, pointed that out so early on. Said, these are these are designed to be lost. The kids. We have four kids. That's eight earbuds that you could be losing at any time. And when I went to get them again for Christmas last year, Santa, uh, he said, you know, those are just designed to be lost. Okay, I'll that. That's the nice thing I said about George and Kamala. How's that? All at once. All at once. Kellyanne, thank you so much for thank taking you the time for to join me. me all the best. And God bless you and your family. Thank, thank you. you. I want to thank you all for listening to these two interviews with the two women who've been at the center of both the media and the political environment uh, over the past several years. People who uh, certainly can cover this issue and understand it from a lot of different perspectives. Just a quick perspective uh, on on my part as I prepare for this election. It really does seem to me like uh, in terms of predicting the future, there's going to be some uh, interesting results that come in that tell us a lot about what Republicans and the Republican coalition looks like for the foreseeable future. One big aspect of that, a storyline that I'm sure you're going to see covered more in the days to come, is going to be the potential success of a number of uh, Hispanic candidates for office across the country. We see a lot of Latina women in particular who have come to the right, who are who really have the potential to win in a number of very close and competitive contests. Uh, should they perform well, you will see them rise, I believe, uh, to become uh, major figures in the conversation in Washington. Uh, there's, it's been a building thing that's gone on over the past couple of years under uh, President Trump and even uh, uh, slightly before then of Hispanics shifting into the Republican coalition, something that's only continued in the wake of the 2020 election under Joe Biden. 
And I think you really are going to see a situation where uh, especially the, the middle class of this country uh, begins to uh, become more and more Republican in response to their frustrations with the left over education, over economic concerns, over concerns about crime and concerns about the border in ways that are going to frustrate a lot of the conventional wisdom people in the, in the left and in the media. It's going to be interesting to watch, and I certainly will be there with you for all of it. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast, brought to you by Fox News. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. We will be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.